bow our heads and pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we believe in you and we believe because you have sent your spirit to open our eyes to be able to see your son, to recognize him as Savior and Lord. And God, I pray right now that as we open your word, Lord, as we uh, get ready to, uh, to hear a baptism testimonies of lives transformed, God, you are still doing miracles, Lord. And, and to take a, a, a sinner and to grant them forgiveness and to give them the gift of eternal life. That is your miraculous work. And we praise you and give glory to you for those who are following and, and, and are being obedient today in being baptized as a follower of Jesus Christ. God, I pray right now that you would help us as your word is open, Lord. I pray that you would be with me, God. I pray that you'd be with my mouth, that you would allow me to speak only that which is true, God. I pray that you'd be with my heart, that you would protect me from, from fear, Lord, that you would protect me from, from pride, God, that, that you would just lead me, that you would be worshipped as your word is being taught and as it's being received. And so, God, we pray that you would be present here among us and that we would be transformed by your living and active word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, you can go ahead and open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers can help you up with that. They're just coming up and down the aisle. Just raise your hand. Let's dive into God's Word, Mark chapter 12. Mark ch chapter 12, verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one. There is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, it's much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Before we study this passage, I'm just really excited about my favorite sport. I want to describe it for you. Maybe you want to join me uh, sometime to, to play my, uh, my, my favorite sport, okay? Uh, there, is a, there is a line, and you're not allowed to cross it until it's time, or else it's called, or else it's called offside. Uh, you're not allowed to elbow other people in the face. Uh, you have a stick, you can't hit them with the stick, you can't trip them with the stick, you can't hook other people uh, with the stick. You're only allowed to have uh, five people on at a time or else uh, that is a, a penalty. Now, I just described to you the rules for the game of hockey. But there is a difference in describing the rules of a game and actually describing Again, were all those things that I just said about hockey true? Yeah, they were. But I neglected to mention ice, skates, puck, net. I, 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 I neglected to mention that the point of the game is not to avoid elbowing people. The point of the game is to take the puck and shoot it in the other team's net. You see, you don't truly understand the game 
just simply by understanding a couple of its rules, a couple of the do's and don'ts. No, the essence of hockey is to score more goals than the other team. The Leafs neglected to do that last night against St. Louis, didn't they? And I'm afraid that when we think about spirituality, we make the same mistake. When, when we think about God or religion, we so often just gravitate towards the rules and the do's and don'ts and what it means to be religious or what it means to be a Christian or what it means to go to church is you, you don't do this and there's a line here and make sure you don't cross it and, and make sure that and you actually miss the point. That is not what Christianity is all about. Christianity is not about rules, it is about a relationship. The essence of what God's Word teaches is not a list of laws. It's not about law, it's about love. And that's what um, Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34, reminds us of. The, the context of the passage is Jesus has just recently arrived in Jerusalem. He came riding on a colt, fulfilling prophecy back in Zechariah chapter 7. And people started laying down their, their clothes in front of him and waving palm branches and saying, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus shows up in Jerusalem, he goes to the temple, he sees the money changers and the merchants who are all in the court of the Gentiles of all places. The, the place where people from other nations were supposed to come and worship the one true God. And there was no room for them to worship because all of these money changers were there. And so Jesus goes in there and he starts turning tables and pushing people out of there, causing this massive ruckus. And then all of the religious leaders start crowding around Jesus. And they're peppering him with questions. Questions about his authority. A question, how dare you do that? Who gave you the authority over, over this place? Then they started talking to him about, about, about life after death. Then they started talking to him about uh, uh, paying tax to Caesar. The only two certainties in life, right? Death and taxes. They're asking him about those essential questions. All the while, someone is observing this interaction between Jesus and the religious leaders. It says in Mark 12 that he was a scribe. It says, one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. Your, your translation of the Bible might not say scribe. It might say one of the teachers of the law. Uh, scribes played an, an, an important role. Uh, uh, function in that society. They didn't have printing presses, they didn't have the internet or photocopiers. If you wanted a copy of a document, you needed a scribe to, to copy it for you. And so the, the reason why we have the Old Testament in our hands right now is because of people like this scribe. They were entrusted with the responsibility of copying out God's word so that other people in different synagogues, in different places could have their, their own copy of the word of God. They took their job very, very seriously. They didn't want to make a mistake because this is God's word. And so they were highly educated, highly meticulous, and therefore very, very respected in the community. And so this scribe comes and he, he sees Jesus interacting with these other religious leaders. And so he asks this question, which commandment is the most important of all? You see, these scribes knew the commandments in and out. They knew that they had come up with the total that there were 613 individual commands that were supposed to be followed. 365 do nots, thou shalt not. 
and 248 dues. But the, they, they had this number in their, in, that they have calculated because they were so familiar with the Bible and its commands. And they were concerned about which command is the most important. A biblical scholar D.A. Carson talks about sometimes how these, these commands can, can butt heads with one another. So there's a, there's a command in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11, saying you should keep the Sabbath. You should do no work. Don't work on Saturday. Whatever you do, make sure that no one does any work on the Sabbath. We're also told that, that when a baby boy is born, that boy should be circumcised on the eighth day. Make sure that this is the law. This is what God's word says. The problem is, what if that baby was born eight days before the next Sabbath? Then the day in which that, that boy is commanded to be circumcised happens to be the day where the priest who's supposed to be doing the circumcision isn't allowed to do any work. And so the scribes and the Pharisees, they spent all kinds of time trying to categorize and prioritize the commands. Which one's most important? Because sometimes they don't always harmonize with one another. And, and then at the very top, after prioritizing all of the commands, they wanted to know what was the most important one. And we're going to make three observations from the passage today. The first two are going to come from Jesus' answer to the scribe. And then the third one is going to come, it's a very important point that's going to come from the interaction that comes afterwards. So he asked them, which commandment is the most important? Jesus says in verse 29, Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You know, it's interesting that he tells them to hear first. Hear. He, he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'm going to take you there in a minute. Actually, let's go there right now. Deuteronomy uh, chapter, chapter 6. Uh, Deuteronomy is in the Old Testament. You have Genesis, then Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy means second law. Do means to. Namos means law. And this was the, the first law, the first reading of the law came at, the, at Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments and the tablets of stone. Then they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. Now it's the next generation. This is the Deuteronomos. This is the second reading of the law. They're about to head into the promised land and Moses rehearses what God's word says. And so if you go to Numbers chapter, or sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land which you are going over to possess it. They're on the border of the promised land. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all the statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, and a land flowing with milk and honey. And then look at verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Before the command is given to love, the command is given first and foremost to hear. When it comes to religion, in fact, when it comes to any topic, we love to talk a lot more than we love to listen. But the command here is, hey, hear. Mark Twain said, if we were supposed to talk more than we were supposed to listen, we'd have two mouths and only one ear. And, and so often, you know, when it, especially when it comes to spiritual things, how many times have you heard a sentence that went something like this? You know what? To me, God is like... 
like as if we're just supposed to make up who we think God is. You know, like what if I just walked around and I just sort of said, you know, Jay, Jay here. To me, Jay is like, well, can't Jay speak for himself? Can't Jay say who Jay is? Doesn't he have authority on who he is? And so Deuteronomy 6 says, hear, O Israel, listen. If we're going to know who God is, we are dependent on his revelation. On what he, it's not up to us to decide who God is. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And then here comes the command to love him with all of our heart and our soul and our might. Jot this down. When we think about the most important commandment, you can't obey God without loving God. You can't obey God without loving God. God does not simply want us to believe in him. He wants us to love him. We started last week by trusting God for more faith, and we talked about uh, faith. Can we get uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 11, uh, verse 2 up, I'm uh, sorry, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 13, uh, verse 2 up on the screen here. La- last week we talked about faith and the mustard seed and the mulberry tree and mountains, but look what 1 Corinthians 13, 2 says, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, then I am nothing. The reason why God wants us to believe in him is so that we can love him. Faith is just a means to an end. God desires to be in relationship with him. So he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your, all of your might. Notice how it says that God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Now this is, this is in stark contrast to our culture. We live in a culture where people like to say, you know, to me God is like, and never, ever does someone say, to me God is like one. There's only one true God. No, we live, we live in a pluralistic culture, don't we? We, we, we? we talk along the lines of, well, to me God is like whatever you want God to be like. To me, God is like, you can believe your thing and I'll believe my thing and we'll all just hold hands and sing kubaya and it will be great. That's the world in which we live, but Deuteronomy chapter 6 says no. Jesus, quoting Deuteronomy 6, says no. The Lord is one. There's only one God. And now they weren't a pluralistic society in, in Jesus' day or in Moses' day. It was more a polytheistic society, which means not, not just the belief that all the gods are essentially the same, but this belief that there were multiple gods. If you're going to war, you want the war god on your side. If you're going on a sea voyage, you want the, you want, you want the, the water god or the rain god on your side. If you're building a family or a business, you want the god of fertility on your side. But Deuteronomy chapter 6, no, 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 there's just one god. There's one God, and he's in charge of war, and he's in charge of your business, and he's in charge of your relationships. He's in charge of it all. The Lord our God is one. And because there's one God, he deserves to be loved with all of our heart and our soul and our might. Jesus paraphrases it in Mark chapter 12 and says, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, some people can focus on those different words, uh, heart and soul and mind and strength. And what does it mean to love God in this category of the heart versus this category of the, of the mind? And, but, but that's not the point here because all of those things overlap with one another. 
the intellectual and the emotional and the spiritual, all of those things are intertwined, aren't they? And so the purpose here is not to create categories of human existence. We spend so much time focusing on the words that are different, we miss the most important word that's repeated four times. Do you see it there? All. All your heart. All your soul. All your might. Because there is only one God, there is only one who deserves everything. And the point is that we would worship God with all that we have and all that we are. All of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. Verse 6 of Deuteronomy 6, it says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Talk about them in all the places you go and all the things that you do. If you're going here, talk about, talk about the Lord. If you're going there, if you're staying put, all the time, talk about God. Verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Put them as a sign on your hand, frontlets be, be, between your eyes. Uh, uh, Orthodox Jews take, take this passage uh, quite uh, literally and, and they actually take Deuteronomy chapter 6 and some other passages of scripture, write them on tiny little pieces of paper and then put them in these boxes and then actually bind them to their hands and to their heads. You might have seen a picture uh, like this of, 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 of someone uh, worshiping and you see the little box there on his, uh, on his bicep binding it to his arm and then on his head binding it. Listen, that, that, that's not what Deuteronomy chapter 6 is intending. The idea is whatever you do with your hands, whatever you do with your arms, do it in a way that shows love to God. And whatever thoughts go through your mind or whatever you bring before your eyes, think thoughts, visualize things in such a way where you are loving God. The idea is all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength, everything you do, everything you think needs to be done in a way that expresses Love to God. That's what we're trusting God for. We are trusting God that he would grow in us a greater love for who he is. That we would love him more often and in more ways and with more power and with more purity. That we would love him with all of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. Now turn with me back to Mark uh, chapter 12. Uh, So often when you ask Jesus for something, he gives you more than what you ask for. And so the scribe asked Jesus for what? He said, which one commandment is the most important? Tell me the most important commandment, singular. And Jesus began by giving the command to hear, that was one. And then he says, you got to love God, that's two. And then he adds another one on. It's a three for one combo here. Uh, Mark uh, chapter 12, verse 31. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. Uh, Make note of this. You can't love God without loving your neighbor. You can't obey God without loving him. But you can't love him unless you love your neighbor. Some people try to, to, to create boundaries or categories that that separate their love for God and their religious life and their spiritual life and the way they interact with other people. Jesus says, no, you are supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. 
You cannot say that you love and worship God and harbor bitterness and resentment and anger towards other people. It's, it's inconsistent. It's hypocrisy to say that we love God but aren't able to take that love for God and have it translated into love for other people. And I'm not just talking about love for other Christians. This is your neighbor. This is everybody. This is uh, people from different religions we are supposed to love. People from different ends of the, the political spectrum that we're supposed to love. We are supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. I remember when I was a teenager, this was one of the passages that, that first really got a grip of my heart. This is James chapter 3, verse 8 to 10. It says, But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father. And with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. I remember reading that as a teenager and thinking about how I would go to church or go to youth group. And I'd sing all these songs to God or I'd talk about how much I love God. And then I would think about what I would say to my friends or to my parents or what I would gossip about, my, my enemies, things that would come out of my mouth and realizing for the first time the inconsistency that I was claiming to love God but I was clearly not loving my neighbor. It's just, it's just not right. It's not right for us to come in here and be like, how great is our God? And then curse and scream when someone's too, too, too slow making a left turn off 10th line. If you're visiting our church for the first time, you're about 45 minutes away from understanding what that's actually about. <laughs> Loving our neighbor as ourselves. It's what we're called to do. Here's the scribe's response in verse 32. The scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength. And to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. When they saw the brilliance of how Jesus took Deuteronomy chapter 6 and connected it with Leviticus chapter 19, love your neighbor as yourself. And he saw the way he handled this difficult question from the scribe. All of the questions stopped at that point. The scribe says, you're, you're right, teacher. You, you've truly said that God is one and there's no other besides him. But it's interesting what Jesus says to him in verse 34. He says, when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. I want you to make note of this. This is very important for us to understand. You cannot enter the kingdom without honoring the king. You cannot enter the kingdom without honoring the king. The first thing we should notice about this conversation is that Jesus clearly is the one who decides who's in and who's out. He sets himself up as the judge. People say, so you know, Judge not. You know, Jesus, Jesus didn't come and judge people. Jesus judged people all the time. He's judging this guy right now. He's like, eh, not far. Not in. 
but you're not far. That's a judgment. Jesus is the one who decides who gets into the kingdom or who is left out of the kingdom. And he, he makes it clear to this individual, you're close, but you're not in. And what's scary for some of us here today is that this person is a lot like us. He has a high view of Jesus. He was observing the conversation back in verse 28, and he, he heard them disputing and seeing that he answered them well. He thought Jesus was insightful. And so he humbly comes and asks Jesus a question, and Jesus gives the answer, and then look at his response in verse 32. He tells Jesus, you are right. Clearly he has respect for Jesus. Clearly he thinks Jesus' teachings are worthy to be followed. How many people in our society and culture believe that about Jesus? A lot of people have a very low opinion about Jesus' followers, and we need to be okay with that. As long as they have a high opinion about Jesus. And you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone on planet Earth, regardless of what they believe, whether they're an atheist or a Sikh or a Hindu or a Muslim, they all have a high view of Jesus. Most people on planet Earth have a high view of Jesus. There ain't no one around being like, I don't like Jesus. Everybody likes Jesus. Everyone has a high view of Jesus. And furthermore, not only does he have a high view of Jesus, he also wants to be a good person. He doesn't come and say, hey, hey Jesus, help me cheat on my taxes and get away with murder because I'm a bad guy. That's not his question. He says, which commandment is the most important? I want to be a good person. And just about every single person here, and everyone living in your neighborhood in this great city of the Toronto area, everyone here has a high view of Jesus and wants to be a good person. Just about all of us. And yet, just about all of us, Jesus would say, are not far from the kingdom. Not in. You see, here's the problem. You have a scribe who's talking to Jesus. And how is he referring to Jesus? He mentions him twice. How does he address Jesus as teacher? He's a scribe and he, he comes to Jesus and he calls him teacher. And if all you see Jesus is, as, is that he's a teacher, then you are not in the kingdom. But if you recognize and realize that he's not a teacher, that he is the king, that changes everything. When our oldest son Ezra was about a year and a half, Lindsay and I were hoping to go and visit some friends in North Carolina, and so we booked flights at the Buffalo Airport. And we wanted to sort of, you know, escape all the busyness of Pearson. And so we did customs, you know, in our car. Um, and got into, got into Buffalo and got into the airport for the first time. Oh, this is, this is a nice airport. And found our gate and got our luggage all ready. And then there was a little a cafeteria, restaurant sort of thing. Um, just about 100 yards away from our, away from our gate. And oh, we sat down and just had a nice breakfast. And we're really, in, really enjoying it. And we're just, you know, we're... we're this is a nice airport. We're just having a nice time. And then we'd look down at our watches and realized, oh man, like the, the plane's about to, about to leave. And we weren't that experienced in air travel. And so we start walking towards the, towards the gate. And there's, there's kind of hardly anyone there sitting in the, in the chairs. And so we start to walk a little bit faster. And then the, the door that goes out to the gate to the plane was closed. And the door to the plane was closed. And if you know anything about air travel, once that door to the plane is, it's closed. 
Now, I want to tell you, we were near the plane. We could see it out the window. It was right there. That little accordion bridge thing was still attached. We were near the pl- we were not far from the plane, but we were not in the plane. And yeah, we're sitting there at breakfast saying, oh, it's a nice airport. Yeah, yeah. How'd you like to spend eight more hours in this airport? Because that's what we had to do. There is a huge difference between being near and being in. Eight hours in the Buffalo airport feels like eternity. But let's actually think about eternity. Eternity in the kingdom. Experiencing in this fullest, most purest sense the perfect love of your creator. Versus eternity enduring and bearing the wrath, the punishment that all of us deserve for our sin. It's not good enough just to be not far. We must ensure that we are in. Don't come to Jesus like the scribe did, just thinking that he's a teacher. Don't come to Jesus just thinking, oh, I'm a spiritual person and he's a religious figure. No, no, no. You come to him as a sinner who needs a savior. You don't enter the kingdom until you honor the king and recognize who he is and and what he came to do. He is God who came down to earth in the flesh, the son of God. He lived the perfect life that none of us could live. He's the only one that loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's the only one who ever truly loved his neighbor as himself. All of us fail in following those two commands. But he obeyed them perfectly. Not only that, he suffered and died on the cross to bear the penalty that all of us deserve for our sin. And then welcomes us and invites us as the king, invites us not to come near to his kingdom, but to come right in. And you can make that decision today. You can make a decision to say, you know what, I've broken the command to love God. I've broken the command to to love others. God, forgive me. Have mercy on me. I commit to following you. I don't want to be near. I want to be in. And today we are going to hear the stories of of these uh, beautiful people who have seen and experienced firsthand what it means to not just be near the kingdom, but to come into the kingdom. And they're about to get baptized right now. So why don't you guys go ahead and get into your positions. Let's give them a round of applause to, uh, to encourage them. And you're going to hear some very different stories today. But, but these stories are going to have something in common. You are going to hear about a loving God who reached down into these lives so that they could understand what it means to be a sinner, to be saved by a Savior. And baptism, listen, uh, baptism is, 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 a, is a symbol, and really it, it's a, a picture, it's a symbol of three things that have already happened in the lives of these individuals. First of all, it's a symbol of a bath. It happens in the context of water. And the New Testament a number of times refers to baptism as a cleansing from sin. Not that baptism itself cleanses you from sin, but it's a picture of how Jesus dying on the cross for us cleanses us from our sin. Also, 
In baptism, you go right under the water. You're not breathing under there. It's a picture of burial. And so it's, it, it's a picture of a bath. It's a picture of burial. It's, it's like I'm dying to my old self. And then it's, you come up out of the water. It's a sign of newness of life. So it's a, it's a bath, it's a burial, and it's a birth. And there is a, a newness of life that is, that is celebrated because God has forgiven the sinner and given them the gift of eternal life. And they're forever uh, transformed. And so I'm going to hand it over to, uh, to Pastor Chris. Can't wait until you uh, hear these stories.